0: My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website, hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. question for you guys. How many people in the room uh, are optimists? Any optimists in the room? You're optimistic about things? Yeah? Uh, How many kind of uh, pessimists do we have in the room? And look, usually the pessimists aren't going to raise their hands right now because they say things like, we're more, we like to be called realists. That's what we like to be called, right? Um, they would call themselves realists, but I'm going to go ahead and call you what you are, uh, which is pessimist. all right? Um, and so, like, I, you know, I mean, there are some people in the world uh, that the glass is definitely half full. And there are some people in the room who the glass is definitely half empty. In fact, the glass is probably empty, like, a lot of the time. Where is there even water coming like that's that's kind of a pessimist attitude, right? I'm sorry a realist attitude, okay Um, But uh, but I kind of see it like uh, when I think about optimism I don't know if you guys have seen like Winnie the Pooh um, but I the ultimate uh, optimist. Tigger is kind of, you know what I'm talking about? Like, bouncing all over the place all the time. He's like, whoo you know? But well, that was pretty good, actually. Um, but uh, he's always kind of around. Um, and then I just think of, like, the realist as kind of being the Eeyore of the group. You know what I'm saying? Like, kind of the, everything is bad. But, uh, but yeah. And, 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 like, you think about the relationship between them, right? Like, I think that, like, Eeyore is probably, like, I think that Tigger is probably, like, like always trying to like make Eeyore like feel better like hey buddy boy like there's this things are good like you don't have to and like I feel like Eeyore wants us having it's like I think that like that's kind of what more Eeyore feels like in this whole situation and that and here's what's funny oftentimes in relationships God puts those people together and you've got an optimist and you've got a realist pessimist and they are together and uh this is just kind of how God does things you know um And I, uh, I don't know if you know which one I am, um, of the whole thing, uh, but I tend to be like raging optimistic about everything. Uh, I don't know why, it's just that nothing is ever like, there's always a brighter side for me. There's always a silver lining for me. If something, you know, comes down, I'm saying I don't get like bad news, but if like something goes down, um, I'm usually the person that is like, but here's the good thing that could happen. Here's the good part that could happen. And I feel like, I don't know, I just feel like that's something that I've always had and uh, and that I try to have uh, because I don't want to sit around and think about the things that might go wrong. Like that's not fun for me in life. And so I think about the other things. And, but here's something that's so interesting. Like as optimistic as I am about things, I read in the scriptures and I read, especially, especially in a verse like second Corinthians chapter five or a chapter like second Corinthians chapter five. And I look at Paul and his optimism is so much higher than my own. I mean, I would consider myself kind of an optimist, but whenever I look into Paul, I go, man, I don't I don't hold a candle to this guy's optimism, and hopefully we're going to see that uh, kind of throughout our scripture today. Um, if you guys remember kind of what we've been talking about uh, in the past, and if you don't know, like you can go catch up. All of our messages on um, any of your podcast places or YouTube or the website or whatever you want. Um, we're not far into Second Corinthians, so you still have time to catch up. But if you guys remember, last week, whenever we were talking about what we've been talking about, Paul's life. Like Up to this point, Paul, the Apostle Paul, has been through a lot in his life. And I mean like hard things in his life. If you guys remember, he talks about kind of these things. He's like, man, everywhere I go, it seems like there's always a group of people that hate me. Everywhere I go, I just am trying to share like Jesus with people, and people hate me, and uh, and and he's been he's gone through he's. Through so much stuff uh, in his life up to this point. He mentions shipwrecks. He mentions persecution. Um, A a few chapters back, if you guys remember, he talked about a moment in his life where he said, I thought it was all over. Like, I thought this was the end. I thought that what I was experiencing and the persecution that I was experiencing, I thought it was done. Like, he was like, if you would have had me put money on it, I would have said, I am going to die in this moment because of the severe persecution that he was going through. And, uh, and he lived in, in a reality, if you think about this, he lived in a reality where he was either seeing persecution happen to Christians, his friends, other people, or he was experiencing persecution himself. And, uh, and Paul knew, Paul knew that the chances of him dying for his beliefs were incredibly great. He lived in a time where he knew that his chances of dying were incredibly great. Who, who all has died before? He's had to watch Stephen be martyred. You know, he's had to watch. He, he was a part of martyring Stephen, right? And, and I'm sure it was a nightmare for him to think back at that and think about those things. And he knows that that, very much alive still, and that people are coming after Christians, and they're trying to eradicate Christianity from the world. And they started by killing Jesus. They were like, we are getting rid of this movement that's happening, and Jesus was the first to die. So if Jesus is going to die, Paul and the rest of the disciples and everyone else who's sharing Christ are like, man, our chances of living are slim to none if we are vocal about our faith, if we are vocal about sharing with people, um, it, is, it, is, it is going to probably eventually happen. Yet he says this, what we just read a second ago in that, is he says that he never loses heart. We talked about that a little bit last week. And he also says that he's always of good courage. You want to talk about an optimist? This is Paul. How can how the world can he say, that he doesn't lose heart, or that he is constantly of good courage. He is always of good courage. And last week, we talked about seven ways to keep from losing heart, according to chapter 4. Uh, and the last one we talked about was the hope that is before us. Like, we don't have to lose heart because the hope that is before us, especially our eternal Hope, and uh, and this is where I think Paul gets the majority of his optimism is that hope, that eternal hope that he has, and uh, and and so what I want to do is I, we're gonna we're gonna read back through this scripture uh, piece by piece, and um, and we're gonna really break down what it's saying because it's very wordy and uh, it's easy to get lost in there. So my job is to explain the scriptures to you guys, and I want to do that to the best of my ability, and just allow the Lord to work in your heart whatever He has to to work on you with. So um, what I want to—we're going to what, we're gonna read uh, these first section, this first set of verses here, but what I want you to remember as he talks about a tent, he's going to talk about a tent. What he's using the word tent for is a metaphor for the earthly body, all right? So as you see the word tent, just know that he's talking about his earthly body, all right? So let's check out uh, chapter 5, verse 1 real quick and, and keep that in mind. Here we go. He says this, For we know that if the tent— that is, our earthly home is destroyed. So he's saying, if we die, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's like, we'll get rid of this tent, and we'll be, giving, we'll be given a building. For in this tent, think about it, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. And we'll talk about what he's saying here in just a second. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life, that which is eternal. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us what the Spirit As a guarantee, he's talking about the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord for the walk, for we walk by faith and not by and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body, of course, than at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away. We are going to make it our aim to please Him. Now, here's what I want you to write down. If you're writing things down, if you've, got a, if you've got a note, something in your phone, whatever, write this down. Here's what I want you to write down. Heaven is not only our destination, it is also our motivation. All right? Heaven is not only our destination, heaven is also our motivation. Let me elaborate just a little bit. How many of you guys love vacation? Really, some people in here are like, I'm not going to raise my hand. We all love vacation, right? No, there's, not a, there's not someone in here, seriously, that is like, oh, vacation. I wish I was back at work right now. Like, I seriously doubt that's a thing, right? So we, we love vacation. We absolute. I love vacation. I love getting away, and I love not worrying about life, I love not worrying about responsibilities. I love not worrying about deadlines and the things that I have to get done and, and all of those things, right? And, and I just like being somewhere and having fun and just to be able to put aside the pressures that we feel of all the things that we have to get done all the time. Um, where I, I like one of my favorite things to do, people are like, what do you like to do on vacation? And I'm like, sit around and think about nothing. Not a thing. You can think about nothing. Yes, I'm very good at thinking about nothing. Like, I just like sitting somewhere and thinking about, but you got to go see all the things. No, I don't. No, I don't. I live in New York. <laughs> like, I've seen a lot of things. Okay, I want to go, and I just want to sit, and I want to think about nothing. Um, and here's, here's what I heard somebody say one time, and I thought this was really good. Uh, I heard somebody say that a great way to live a happier life A great way to live a happier, this isn't spiritual by any means, okay? But a great way to live a happier life is before you leave for your vacation, have your next one already planned. That's a good way to go through life. And now why, why would that be a good way to go through life? Why would that be something that somebody would tell you is good advice? Well, because I don't know about you, but whenever I've got a vacation planned, I'm really looking forward to it, right? And it honestly Like work and life just a little bit sweeter because you've got stuff that you're looking forward to. You got a vacation that you and so what does that vacation become? It becomes a motivation, right? A motivating factor behind why you do the things that you do, and it kind of pushes you towards that next thing. I remember being in school. What was my motivator? The weekend, right? The weekend was my motivator, but weekends are too short. They're too small, right? But I remember whenever I was in school the thing I really really look forward to, especially when you started getting in the last part of the semester, people are feeling it right now. It's summer break. Man, I loved summer break. I loved no school. And it was an absolute motivator for me uh, at the end of the school because I'm like, oh, I gotta just press on to this, and then we've got summer break. Well they say, go ahead and plan your next vacation before your vacation so that whenever you get back from vacation, you're not going, It's over so is my life. Like, you know, like that, that's not what we want to think. And so you can go, oh, I got another one coming, right? It's just a good, a good way to do because it gets you through your day. It gives you something to look forward to. There is hope, right? Well, think about this because I think, I think this is kind of how Paul lives his life. Paul understands something. He understands that heaven is absolutely unimaginable, like what we're going to experience in heaven. He's talking about, he's talking about, you know, in that section of scripture, the day that this body, this tent goes away and, and we're given a new body is what he's talking about. And this, he's like, man, we get to be before God. He's like, man, I, I can't wait for that day. And, uh, and so he's, he's like, this is going to be something that's just so incredible. And we get glimpses, we get glimpses of heaven, um, but we can't even touch the surface of really how incredible that it's going to be. The best way I can put it is take the emotion you would be feeling if you were on your dream vacation. I don't know what your dream vacation is. We all probably have different dream vacations, okay? Uh, My dream vacation would be anywhere where I'm thinking about nothing. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But like think about that and then multiply it by like beyond infinity. Like that, see you can't quantify that. You're like, I don't understand, but this is what this is what this is what scripture kind of gives us a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. You can't even imagine like like our brains only understand this world and what's in this world and what's waiting for us on the other side is something that scripture says God says is beyond your wildest dreams, your wildest imagination. And here's a little bit of what we do know, though, according to Scripture. And by the way, it's enough for a motivation in our lives. It's the place where God dwells, and we will get to see him face to face. We will experience everlasting joys. We will experience rewards, and we will experience treasures. I don't know everything about all of that. I just know that Scripture says those are some things we are going to experience. The light, something else we're going to experience, the light of Jesus, we talked about this last week, permeates every corner. Of what's going to be there. There is no death. There is no evil. There's no selfish motive in anyone, including yourself, but in anyone else. There is no bad thought. There is no hint of pride. There is no insecurity. There is no jealousy. There is no discrimination or competition. We will have perfected friendships. That's pretty cool. Perfected, because how many of you guys like having friends? Yeah, but how many of you guys like it when you're fighting with your friends? No. Imagine everybody having perfect attitudes and everyone understanding everything perfectly. Like you're all, oh man, that would be incredible, right? I can imagine my friendship with my kids. No animosity in between us at all. It'll just be beautiful. But uh, our knowledge and our understanding will increase dramatically. Man, I said amen. We will have an abundance of joyful work. I know you said, I just said the word work, and you're like, hang on, time out. That wasn't supposed to be in heaven. Listen, it talks about work, but it talks about an abundance of joyful work that will somehow be absent of confusion, absent of sweat, annoyance, pressure, stress, or climbing a corporate ladder. We will work for the joy of work and not because we are lacking. Not because we're lacking. And I know you're thinking about that and you're like, man, work doesn't sound like the best thing in the world. But think about this for a second. There are a lot of people who retire and then they go get to work at things that they love doing. And you go talk to someone who's retired and working for nothing, they are immensely happier than any person that is actually working for a paycheck or working for uh, elevation in the, jo- in the company or whatever. So if you can imagine, it's just like, I mean, that is, I'm serious, like way low on what it's really going to be like. But it's like this retired person being like, I just want to go do what I love. Like that's all, that's what we get to do. We get to do the things that we love to do. And we don't even really understand all the things that we love to do yet. Um, There are streets of gold, and there are mansions built for each of us that Jesus has prepared himself. And we will have new perfected bodies, is what the scriptures say. I don't know what a perfected body will be like, but I can certainly tell you what it's not going to be like right here. All right? Um, I don't know, uh, you know, like everything there is to know about heaven, but, man, it, it gives us really great ideas. Like, there's going to be no hardships. Can you imagine a life like that? No hardships, no tears, no pain, no suffering. We're going to be at complete peace. And again, all of that is not even scratching the surface. It's just what we're allowed to know, and it's not everything. Um, And in Philippians, Paul says these famous words. He says, to live is Christ. Let's see how Christian you are. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is Christ, but to die is gain, right? And that sounds a little morbid at first, right? But he says something similar in the scripture that we just read. He said, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. He's like, he's, he's, he's not like, I want to like die and, 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 and be rid of this body. Like he's not being like morbid in any of this. Uh, it's, he's like, I want to be more alive. I want to be more alive than I already am. And Paul couldn't wait to get to heaven. He couldn't wait to leave his tent of a body that comes with groaning and full of burdens. I don't know about you guys, but I do the thing now where, like, I, like, groan. Right? I thought that was the only thing that old people did. Well, it is. And the harsh reality is I'm old. Um, but, like, the thing, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, I didn't really realize it until, like, I was, like, bending over to pick something up. And you get up and you're like, ugh. It's like, my, my son was like, what was that? Like, I don't know. Why did that happen in my life? Man, we understand groaning in our bodies. Like, I used to, like, wrestle with my kids on the floor, and then I'd, like, pop right back up and be, oh. Uh. But I can't wrestle with my kids on the floor. I'll never be able to get back up. That's, that's kind of how it feels in my life right now. Um, and, uh, and, and so I understand. Like, I understand hardships. I understand that this body just seems to, like, waste away We have these issues, you know, whenever you turn 30, you're like, what's that? Whenever you turn 35, you're like, what's that? You turn 40 and you're like, I'm basically dead. That's what it feels like, right? Uh, but I mean, that's that's just kind of these bodies. These bodies are just tents, and Paul understands what a tent is. He's a tent maker himself. He understands good and well, and I love I love that he uses that as a metaphor. He's like that's that's what this is. He's like, well, one day we're gonna be we're gonna be clothed further. He's like, it's not not just that I want to like be unclothed from this. He's like, I want to experience a clothing that is beyond this, something incredible. And, uh, and so heaven is not only our destination, it's our motivation. Um, and, and here's something. Do you, do you guys notice how Paul lives like all of this is guaranteed to happen? Like he talks like this is a real thing. He talks as if like this is for real going to happen. Like he really believes it. Uh, Paul is positive that there is a heaven and he is positive that he's going to be going there. That's how he talks in this. He absolutely knows for sure. And how does he know this? How is he so confident? Well, look at what he says, because we can be as confident as well. And this is where our courage comes from, by the way. He says this in verse 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing. What's this very thing? These new bodies being swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit As a guarantee. Now, sometimes the beauty of the Greek language gets trampled on by our English language. The Greek language is very beautiful. They have a lot of things that explain a lot of things and a lot of words for a lot of words. And they, like we talk about all the time, they have like different words for love, right? And we just have one word for love. And it's like, I love my mom. I love Jesus. I love pizza right? Like, we have one word for it all. But the Greek language is incredible. And and sometimes our words, our words just can't paint the picture. So the Greek word that is translated in English to the word guarantee here, where it says, "Is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. If you look, if you have some other translations in the room right now, uh, it might also be translated as earnest, right? Uh, it also, like, a, like as in earnest money, or it might be translated like as a down payment, that's another way that we can translate this word. Um, like if you guarantee a transaction or give like earnest money or a down payment for something or on something, you're telling them that this transaction is going to happen. It's like a covenant between you and this person. I'm giving you this money. I'm telling you that I'm in. Like this proves to you that I am in, right? But listen to this beautiful picture. The Greeks also use this word as their word for engagement, Engagement. I'm not talking about like where you engage in something. I'm talking about engaged to be married. That is also how they use this word. And so like Tamara and I, um, we just celebrated our 18th anniversary yesterday. 18 years. Uh, and uh, it was 20 years ago that we met. Uh, it was 19 years ago that we got engaged. And, uh, and, and so, you know, um, I, what, what did I give her at our engagement? I gave her an engagement ring, right? And, and what did that ring signify to her? This is it. Like, this is happening. Like, I promise to you that we are going to get married. And I realized that, that the more things progress, like, the less... Um, Serious things become like engagement ring. Engagement rings sometimes now they're like, ah, it's more like a promise ring. Like, ah, I might break my promise though. But like, man, whenever I gave Tamra and like what an engagement ring is supposed to mean is that I give you a ring telling you that I'm going nowhere. Like you are the person and we are going to be together forever. Like this is it. You've found it, right? And we counted down the days uh, until we were married. And every time, you know, that uh, Tamara was, would look at her finger, it would tell her it's happening. Like, this is it. Like, it's going to happen. And you know what Paul—this is, this is, is why Paul was so confident— it's the same reason that you and I can be confident, is that, let I me mean, think about what he's saying here in that as a guarantee. We have an engagement, guarantee from God that we will one day be united with him. We are, he is engaged to us. That is what this scripture is saying right here. If you read back, it says, is God who has given us the spirit as an engagement, He's given us that spirit as an engagement. It's such a beautiful thing that these old bodies who ache and groan and experience extreme hardship will one day be perfected. We will no longer live in this tent of a body, but rather a building built by God. And, that, and, and it's a guarantee. And the guarantee, the engagement ring, if you will, is the Holy Spirit. That is our engagement ring that he has given us. And so when things are tough, we can look at that ring, that Holy Spirit that is in us, and we can be reminded of everything that God is going to do, reminded of what's to come, that unity that's to come. And I think this is what Paul often did. When we are afflicted, remember what he said last week in, in those scriptures. He said, we're afflicted, right? But he said, but we're not, we're not perplexed. When we are afflicted, or he says we're not crushed, when we are afflicted, we can lift the ring. And it will keep us from being crushed. When we are perplexed, the ring keeps us from being driven to despair. When we are persecuted, the ring reminds us that we are not forsaken. When we are struck down, the ring keeps us from being destroyed. We're able to look. Paul constantly was looking at that engagement ring. He was saying, I've been given the Holy Spirit, and he has been given so much courage. And this is why in verse 6, Paul is able to say, so we are always of good courage. Because we look at that engagement ring that God has given us as the Holy Spirit. And we can always be of good courage because it's happening. And what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? He says this, so death, where is your victory? He says, death, where is your sting? Listen to this. It's hard to knock someone down when death has no sting. When death has no sting, it's hard to knock somebody down. Because there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people who are afraid to die. And sometimes death can be a motivating factor to something. Sometimes death causes us to do things because we feel like that it's just the closing of a door. Like death is going to be it. It's going to be over. The door is going to be shut. But as we know, as what is said in Scripture... That when when death is no longer viewed in fear as a closed door, but rather a doorway into the greatest paradise that we've not even touched the surface of imagining, then we don't lose courage. We absolutely do not lose courage courage. And there's something greater waiting for us on the other side. And and let not it just be a destination, but let it be a motivation. A motivation, as Paul says here, to walk in confident faith and not by sight. Not only by what we see in front of us, all right? And then he kind of throws this reminder in verse 10. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, where everybody gets kind of uncomfortable right now, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, in, under, in, in order to understand what Paul's referencing here, we have to understand the context and the audience to whom he's writing, of course. So when we hear judgment seat of Christ, we think, uh-oh, that's going to be the moment where he looks at us and he's like, you can be in or you can be out, right? You're going to be guilty or you're going to be innocent. But one that wouldn't make sense in this context, because Paul is talking about the reward of heaven and he's talking about new bodies. Why would he all of a sudden throw it around and be like, ah, oh, we're all going to be judged, right? Well, so what's he talking about here? And also our debt has been paid by Christ. So he's talking to believers. Like, we're not going to experience that judgment seat, the throne of God. He's like, this is, you're either going to pay for your own sins or Christ has paid for them on your behalf. Like, so that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. So what's he talking about? What judgment of Christ is he talking about in this seat that we are going to appear before? Because it does say we're going to appear before some sort of judgment seat, right? So again, let's go back to the Greek because it really helps explain things. Uh, The Greek word for judgment seat is bima. Everybody say bima. Bima, right? Okay. Which was a judgment platform, but here's what it also was. It was the platform where athletes would stand like like, I mean, I guess I would say, like, if you picture the Olympics or you picture, like, any kind of, like, um, sporting event where at the end people are, they receive some sort of, like, reward, right? Uh, like like the Olympic times, for instance. You, you know they got, like, first place and then second place and then third place, right? And so that what that was called back then was called the BEMA. And the people would come before the BEMA and then the person who was on the judgment seat, BEMA, would be the person who would hand out. The rewards to the people. And so, back in our time, for our time, it would be uh, medals right around their neck. But what was it back in their time? Do you guys know what they were handed? Crowns. They were given crowns. And so, whenever he's talking about Abima here, This is essentially what he's talking about. He's talking about this moment, this Bema seat, where they understand very well that it's about crowns or rewards that people are going to experience and receive. And so he's basically saying, look... He's saying, for we must all appear before the behemoth seed of Christ so that each one may receive in order to, to get a, re- in other words, to get a reward what is due for what he has done in the body. So what he's saying is, he's saying, look, you've been given this body. You've been given this life. And Christians, what we're going to do is we're going to stand before God. There is going to be a judgment. He's going to look at our lives, and he's going to reward us based on what we have done in our bodies. And you're like, yeah, but Greg, he also talks about whether good or evil. What he's talking about here is what your intentions were behind the things that you did. Like, were your intentions pure? Were your motives pure? Were your motives godly? Or... Were your motives selfish? Were they to, to gain something for you? Um, was, it, was, it, was it for God or was it for self? And that's what he's saying is actually going to happen here, which makes a lot more sense with what he's been talking about. And so the Bible talks about different crowns that we'll receive in heaven based off of what we have done uh, in other places. And, uh, and so this is absolutely a reference to that. So do we live with that knowledge at the forefront of our minds? I don't, I don't know that I do. Like whenever I'm reading this, I'm, I had to be reminded that I'm going to stand before God and that there is going to be a judgment based on the things that I've done with this body that he has given me. And I'm either going to receive rewards or I'm not. Like, my deeds are either going to be shown as having evil intentions behind them, like selfish intentions, or they're going to be shown as having good intentions behind them. That is, the Lord was doing these things, right? And, and I, I don't know if we live— if you, Can you think of the motivating factor that would be, though, if we lived with that in our minds? See, that's what I'm saying. Like, he's, he's so optimistic about so many things because he's like, man, I'm going to have a new body— we're going to experience heaven, but also we're going to receive rewards based on what we've done. Man, he, this, is what is a, this is how he's able to be uh, so optimistic about things. And I love that he uses all of those things as a motivating factor. And uh, some of you guys might be saying, yeah, but, but really, like, we do our work so that we can receive rewards? Isn't that itself not, like, good intentions? No, because God has set up this reward system. He straight up said, "Look, I want to reward you. I can't wait to reward you, right?" And uh, and so no, it's not bad. It's God gives that to us as a motivation. "Hey, you're going to receive crowns. You're going to receive rewards uh, for what you've done." And then he goes on. He says in verse 11 through 17. Um, check this out. He says, and we're going to really focus in on one verse, but he says, "Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord," because this is this has given him a fear of God, like a great respect, not like a like I'm afraid of God, but a Like a great respect for God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But but what we are is known to God. What is he persuading them of? That their intentions are pure. Their motives are pure. And I hope it is known also to your conscience that our intentions are pure. We are not commending ourselves to you. Again, but giving you cause to boast about us. Like, be, be proud of us because we are the ones that are doing things of pure motives. Like, not these false teachers that you're listening to. He says, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He's, d- Sorry, he's directly speaking to those um, false teachers that are trying to teach the church in Corinth something that is a different gospel. And in 13, he says, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right minds, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't think about anybody else anymore in a fleshly kind of way. Even though once we regarded Christ even according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer because they think of things through the Spirit. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul was accused by all the false teachers in Corinth of being in it for himself. And they were saying the motivating factor behind Paul's letter and his visits were to boast in himself. But here Paul is reminding them that his words are proof. That is a motivating factor behind anything that he does is not selfish. It is not evil. It's not for outward appearance, but it's a result of what Christ has done in his heart. It's a result of the new creation that Paul has become. Paul is saying essentially this: because Christ died, old Paul died. And he's saying, because Christ died, Paul can now actually live. He's saying, I had to die to my old self so that I could actually become alive. And so Paul is not doing these things. Uh, Paul is not doing the things he is doing because of a love he has for himself. Look what he said. He said, he's doing it because of a love that he has for God. I love how he puts it. The love of Christ controls us. Put that up there real quick. The love of Christ controls us. I want to think about that for just a second. Those are very, very powerful, powerful words. Whenever I was, uh, well, actually, I wasn't really a kid. Like, uh, my son and I, um, we, uh, we had like these RC cars. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, RC stands for remote control. Um, but uh, we had these RC cars. They could go up to like 60 miles an hour. Like, they were insane. Um, and, uh, they ran off battery, but, like, we really kind of got into it, he and I, and so we had, like, a neighborhood where we had, like, a really long street, and it was really fun because, like, we had some neighbors that would want to, like, race our RC cars down the street sometimes, Except we'd always beat them, because they can't go 60 miles an hour in the neighborhood, but, uh, we would always just race them, and they would go back and forth, and they were just, they were incredible, they were so fun, and, uh, where we lived, we even had, like, a, that you could go and like race them around and all that kind of stuff and but here's the thing about the high-end race cars Okay, like the high-end RC cars is that you had to turn off and on you had to turn things off and on in like a specific order or your remote control car would go nuts So in other words like you had to make sure that you turned your remote. And I wish this thing would start working. We had a we had a thing where you could turn the remote control uh, like on Then you turn your RC car Because if you turn your RC car on without the remote control, I know you guys are like, this is riveting. This is about RC cars right now. Like, if you turn your RC car on before, then it has nothing controlling it, and it will just be out of control. And when you, you can't catch something like that, all right? Like, what? goes nuts, like you're chasing it down. You're hoping it doesn't run over the neighbor's cat. Like, you're like, please, right? And so uh, it's like you had to be really, 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 really careful. And whenever you turned it off, you could not turn off the remote control first. Because if you did, it would lose connection and it would just go nuts. Like the thing would go everywhere. And you're like, Greg, what's the point of this story? Well, the point of this story is, I think it's a really, really good example that we are meant to be In God's grace controlled by something or else we're gonna be controlled by ourselves. We're gonna be just controlling ourselves and I don't know about you but before I lived in the control of Christ and His Word I was in control of myself and I was not doing a very good job. Like I was left to my own understanding about things and I'm Like, who has that kind of ability and capability to steer yourself in a direction that you know for a fact is going to lead to everlasting joy in your life and not be miserable? Like, I made terrible, terrible decisions, and I was just like that RCR where I'm just going here, going there, running over the neighbor's cat. Like, that is what—I didn't really do that, but, like, that is what my life was like. It was just completely chaotic. But then— But then, and just like Paul is saying right near, but then I met Jesus. But then I was under, I understood the love that God had for me. I mean, you think about Paul for just a second, right? I mean, this is his testimony. He's like, the love of Christ controls me. You think about his testimony? Like this guy used to kill Christians. He used to just live on his own understanding, trying to like climb this corporate ladder, if you will, in Judaism, where he's like, man, I'm going to become the Pharisee of Pharisees and I'm going to do what I'm told and I'm just going to climb this thing and it's all going to be great. But at the end of the day, Paul was miserable. He was doing it all himself and he was absolutely miserable. And then one day God met him on a road and said, hey, blinded. And, and Paul was like, who are you? And he's like, I'm actually Jesus who you've been persecuting. And Paul's like, oh, shoot. You're real? Like, you're back? Like, I heard that you were. (laughs) Like, But you are for real? And Jesus says, I want you to come and I want you to live for me. I, I am willing to look, I am willing to forgive. I am willing to die for everything that you did, even in killing me. I am willing to take that punishment. And I'm willing to give you life. If you will just come and follow me. In other words, if you'll allow me If you'll trust in me and you'll follow me, if you'll be under my control, if you will, you will submit to my authority, I will lead you and I will guide you. And Paul's life changed dramatically. Paul couldn't, he did not understand. Like he thought he understood that God loved him, but now he understood it to a completely different level. To a completely different level. So whenever Paul says the love Christ controls me, we get a little bit of an idea of what he means. Because he understands exactly how much God loves him. And love that God has for him is the controller of his life. And I think that we often, what we too often forget to think about the love that God has shown us. And if we will just go back to that and we will consider who we were, and we will consider who we are now in Christ that we will also be controlled by the love of God that that love will cause us to do things that lead to ultimate joy ultimate satisfaction everywhere that we're looking to go, love love is a completely it's it's such a powerful remote Love is is such, a, and and I know you know what I'm talking about because like if you've ever had a friend, who has found someone, right, and they've all of a sudden fallen in love, what has what happens to that friend usually? See you, <laughs> right? You they gone, all right? Why? Because oh, they're in love now, right? I mean, do you think about? the control that love has over someone. Like, I look back, like, I don't regret, like, the time that I spent with my wife, but I regret the rejection of my friends after I met Tamara, because I was like, oh, we were so tight. Everyone was so close. But then it was like, later, like, thanks for everything. Uh, I found someone new that I want to be with all the time. I want to spend every waking moment with. I want to text her at night. You hang up now. You hang up now. You gonna? Are you gone? Are you there? Oh, she's gone. <laughs> like you know, like like that's kind of that's that just man that control that it had over you. See, that's that's kind of what Paul is talking about, but in like a holy way. That like, that he just he just can't get over the love that God has shown him and the love that he has for God, and so that causes him to live and to have courage and to not lose heart. It guides him completely. And, and I think that John would agree with him because First John chapter 4, verse 19, he says, we love because God loved us first. We love he first loved us. And so let us, be reminded every day, let us be reminded every day of how God pursued each and every one of us. Like, be reminded of that. Be reminded that God pursued you. And he loved you enough to come after you and to save you and to change you. But it's also, and that's going to cause us to live for him. It's going to change everything that you do, every conversation you have. It's going to start to change things. It's going to change how you parent. It's going to change how you spouse. I just made that a verb. How you child. I made that a verb too. How you friend. It's going to change how you co-work. It's going to change how you employee. It's going to change how you disciple. It's going to change how you share the gospel. And it's going to change how you represent Christ, which kind of brings us to our closing here. Here's what he says in 18 through 21. He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave, he gifted us, the ministry of Be reconciled to God for our sake. He has made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is how this thing called Christianity is supposed to work. God reconciling us to himself first. Reconcile means to restore something back from brokenness. Our sin has broken our relationship with God And to restore us, God made him Christ who knew no sin to be sin. In other words, Christ who was in every way righteous took our sin that made us unrighteous and he became that sin so that in exchange he could give us his righteousness. And God through Christ reconciled us to himself and he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. He said, I'm going to gift you. I'm going to give you the opportunity. That reconciliation that you've just experienced with me, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be a minister to others about that reconciliation. And what does Paul say? God in his sovereignty has chosen to use you and I to make his appeal, to share this incredible news with others as his ambassadors. I love the fact that he uses the word ambassadors there. We are ambassadors for Christ. You and I, (laughs) for all who put our faith and trust in Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the highest of honors that we could have. Ambassadors for the Lord himself. People are blessed enough to represent their country, but you and I represent the kingdom of God. Wow, what a deal. Our lives, our words, represent to the world the love of God. And that is no small task. I was immediately reminded of Paul's words in Ephesians 4.1. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What's a calling that all of us have received as believers? Ambassadors for Christ. Are we living a life worthy of the calling that we've been given as ambassadors for God? I think with love at the control... We will rightfully fulfill that role as ambassadors with love at the control. Love this chapter. Love so many things that you know that he reminds us of in here, that he says in here. I love so much of the stuff that he said. And I would I would encourage you to go back and to read through it even again. And just be reminded of the things that that we today, but be reminded of and read it read it in a different translation if you want to uh, to get a better idea of what he's saying here but uh but man I hope I hope that we will take what is here and I hope that we will uh just as we always say we'll be doers of what this says and not hearers only so I'm going to ask you guys just to bow your heads for just a second because we're going to go we're going to go to the Lord in prayer and uh and so you know If you've never been here before, this is something that we like to do. We don't, uh, we have a a time that we, a time that we like to call a response time, which is just like you there alone with the Lord praying to him in response to whatever it is that he's shown you today. Whatever it is, all right? Maybe, maybe you're in this room and you've never been reconciled to God in the first place. Maybe he's calling you to be reconciled to him, to, to give your life to him, to put your trust in him. Maybe you understand that heaven has just kind of been this destination. It's not really been a motivation for my life. But maybe we'll see that it's a motivating factor. Maybe, you know, maybe we're like, man, I'm going to stand before the Bema seat. What's going to be revealed about your motivations? Something really good that we need to ask ourselves. How are we doing as ministers of reconciliation? How are we doing as ambassadors for Christ? all great questions that we have. So I'm going to invite you guys just to take a few minutes, uh, the quietness and the stillness of your seat and just to pray and just to respond to God however you want. And then we're going to have a time of worship together. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at HopeCommunityNYC.com